If you have a Bible, we're going to open to the book of Kings and the second part. It's called Second Kings and chapter 19 this morning. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to open there with me. It's a longer chapter. We'll read it in just a moment. Second Kings chapter 19. Well, it's been a while since we have visited the British Museum in our study, at least virtually. Um, as you know, one of my favorite places. Has anyone else ever been, just curious, to the British Museum? Wow, a lot of you have. It's a great place, isn't it? The British Museum, at least by pictures, in our, in our series of kings, the reason I mention that is because occasionally I have referenced the incredible artifacts of the ancient kingdom of Assyria that are hosted there, housed in the British Museum. Archaeologists in the 1830s and 40s 50s unearthed, excavated the palace complex of a serious capitals of Nineveh and Nimrod, and they discovered almost intact these large stone reliefs that lined the palace walls. Just these major find, and these are pictorial reliefs that account their major happenings, especially their major battles. And perhaps one of my favorite rooms as I was there was if I can get this door, this room, can you advance that for me, Daniel? This room here in the British, this is one of the rooms of many rooms, and you can see the stone reliefs on the wall there. These were unearthed. These are, these are old. These are from 700 B.C. It's amazing. Um, the Lakish reliefs, they are called, and this room and all those walls, it recounts the siege of Lakish under the great... Assyrian king Sennacherib in the year 701 BC. He sieged the city and conquered it. Lachish is a Judean city. It's one of the cities in our text here this morning. And he laid siege to this and indeed conquered it. And that's what all these reliefs are. To give you a little, uh, my thing is just not working. All right, I'm going to have to. Um, a little closer up view, if you can kind of see that a little bit. There's a couple of those. There's many of these. But you have their Sennacherib. That's the king. You see him on his throne there, and they're passing by. And on the inscription, there's a cuneiform inscription right above that that begins with this, Sennacherib, king of the world. He thought really highly of himself. King of the world, king of Assyria, set up a throne, and the spoils of Lachish passed before him. And that's what's happening in this. That other one is just a, a torture scene. I thought the kids might like that. It's a torture scene of, uh, uh, of some of the, the captives. They were brutal in their tactics, the Assyrians. I, didn't, I left out the more graphic ones um, of what they did here. Um, you did not want to be captured by the Assyrians here. So he's boasting of this and all that they did. Why do I mention that? Well, if you're in 2 Kings, in chapter 19, just, just flip back one page maybe in your Bible to chapter 18. And we read this last week, but just to remind you of where we're at in our study of this king. Remember verse 13, Hezekiah, the king is on the throne. It says in verse 13 of chapter 18, Now in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and seized them. It's this guy. Then, verse 14, Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish. That's where he's at. That's this city. It's Lachish, that's what he's conquering. And he says, I've done wrong, and he sends him tribute. In fact, 30 talents of gold, 
Sennacherib records that in his annals. You can read about that very thing that happens here. So it's really quite remarkable. So that's how it intersects with our text here. That's who we're talking about, Sennacherib in the city of Lachish. But perhaps my favorite little object there in the British Museum is this little cylinder, six-sided clay cylinder, 15 inches tall, that has the annals of Sennacherib on it. This is his account. This is what he writes. And you can read through that, his campaigns. And one of those annals, part of that annals, says this on it. He writes of Hezekiah. He says, as for the king of Judah, Hezekiah, who has not submitted to my authority, I besieged and captured 46 of his fortified cities, along with many smaller towns. Just what we read about. Hezekiah himself, I shut up like a caged bird in Jerusalem, his royal city. The terrifying splendor of my majesty overcame him. (laughs) This is our Hezekiah. This is what happened. Sennacherib did come and he did conquer those 46 fortified cities in Judah. And he did shut up Hezekiah like a caged bird in Jerusalem. Now, I start there with those, and I have in the past with those kind of things. One, again, to give us confidence in our Bible. This is real history we're reading here. These aren't fables. These aren't fairy tales that they just made up about this nation. This is real history. These things happened here, and you can read them in other records, like in... Sennacherib's record of what happened. So I always want to give us confidence in the historic reliability of the Bible. This is real, what we're reading here. I also give it because Sennacherib himself really gives us the context for our look at 2 Kings chapter 19, our story this morning. His account is fairly accurate Description of the situation at the beginning of chapter 19. Hezekiah is indeed shut up like a caged bird. Now, you remember back to last week, in case you weren't here, Hezekiah is the new king in Jerusalem. The northern kingdom of Israel is gone. They've been conquered. Hezekiah is now reigning in Judah, and he's a good king. In fact, he's the best king we've had since David. He's the best king for 300 years. He's a good king, and yet Sennacherib, this great Assyrian king and his mighty army, they have captured all the fortified cities of Judah. Remember, Hezekiah stopped paying tribute to Assyria. He's trying to throw off his reign, so Sennacherib is coming to recompense him. And he's come and he's captured all these cities, including Lachish, about 40 miles outside of Jerusalem, and he is right at the footsteps of Jerusalem. And from Lachish, Sennacherib sends these messengers, these three messengers, to give a message to Hezekiah, who's in Jerusalem. And that main messenger, we were told, the Rabshakeh, he comes and he gives this message, basically saying, you need to surrender or be devastated. You need to surrender. Now, they prefer that they surrendered, so they didn't have to go through this whole siege warfare and battle. So you remember in chapter 18, we saw all these persuasive arguments from this spokesman of Sennacherib. And his basic argument was, don't trust Hezekiah and don't trust in Yahweh. They are absolutely helpless to deliver you. They can't stand before the great king Sennacherib. 
So you need to give up now, come out, which means being deported and probably Hezekiah being killed and replaced. You need to give up now or we will devastate you. That's the situation. He is shut up like a caged bird. He's already paid him tribute, but it didn't avail. So what happens? What happens? Chapter 19. We're going to read now the exciting conclusion of this story. And it is an exciting conclusion to this story. Chapter 19. I'll, I'll, under the heading, Why Trust Yahweh? We'll see that at the end. Why Trust Yahweh here in a minute. But let me look at chapter 19. We're going to read it together. Now, the interesting thing about Sennacherib's account that I was just referring to on those, that prism there, his account doesn't say what happened. <laughs> he never says what happened to Jerusalem. I have Hezekiah, I conquered Lachish. I have Hezekiah shut up like a caged bird. And then he goes home to Nineveh. What happened? And then he makes all these great reliefs about conquering Lachish. Anybody heard of Lachish? No, Lachish. Lachish? I mean, yeah, that's a fortified city. But what's your prize? Jerusalem. If you capture Jerusalem, that's what you're going to make a room about, right, on, on your walls. You capture Jerusalem, he settles for Lachish. Why? What happened? He just went back home to Nineveh? Well, the biblical account tells us what happened. <laughs> An accurate account of what happened and why he went home to Nineveh without his prize trophy of Jerusalem. So that's chapter 19. Let's read what happens. This is a... This is an exciting chapter. If you don't have a Bible, just listen as I, as I read through this. It is a long chapter. I'm going to read it all. It takes six and a half minutes <laughs> to read through this. So, and that does not count towards my time <laughs> this morning. But let's read it, um, all of it. And just listen in. If you don't have a Bible file, just listen. It's a pretty gripping story. So here we're left off. Remember, Hezekiah has just gotten word about this report that they're going to come and take the city or surrender what do we do? And this is what Hezekiah does. Listen to what he does. Verse 1. And when King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth. This is a sign of mourning and distress. And he entered the house of Yahweh. He entered the temple. Then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household with Shebna, the scribe, and the elders of the priest, covered with sackcloth, to Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amos. By the way, this is the Isaiah from the book of Isaiah. He's here. And they said to him, thus says Hezekiah, this is a day of distress, rebuke, and rejection. For, then he uses this it's kind of a hard idiom here. He says it's really a time for children to come to birth and there's no strength to give birth. It's, a, it's an idiom for meaning we're like a woman who's been in labor and now there's no strength left to deliver. It's a helpless situation. Verse 4, perhaps, he says, Yahweh your God will hear all the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, sent to reproach the living God and will rebuke the words which Yahweh your God has heard. Therefore, offer a prayer for the remnant that is left. So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah. And Isaiah said to them, thus you shall say to the ma your master, thus says Yahweh, do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land. And I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Then, 
the Rabshakeh, returned and found the king of Assyria fighting in Libna. That's a little bit outside of Lachish, so he's moved. For he had heard that the king had left Lachish. And when he heard, saying, Tirhaka, king of Cush, that's Egypt, Ethiopia, behold, he has come out to fight against you. So that Egypt has come to fight against them. He sent messengers again to Hezekiah. He doesn't want Hezekiah thinking, oh, this is the fulfillment of that word. Remember what Isaiah just said to him? He's going to hear a rumor. He's going to leave. Well, he does hear that Egypt has come and he has left. He's left the city. So this must be the fulfillment. But he sends another message saying, not so fast. I'm not going anywhere. So listen to what the message says. It's just like last week and last chapter. Thus you shall say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you, saying, Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, destroying them completely. So will you be spared? Did the gods of those nations, which my father destroyed, deliver them, even Gozan, Haran, and Resef, and the sons of Eden, who were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharvaim, and of Hena and Iva? Then Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And he went up to the house of Yahweh, the temple, and spread it out before Yahweh. And Hezekiah prayed before Yahweh and said, Oh, Yahweh, the God of Israel, who are enthroned between the cherubim, you are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Yahweh, and hear. Open your eyes, O Yahweh, and see. Listen to the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, O king. O Lord, the kings of Assyria have devastated the nations and their lands, have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. So they have destroyed them. And now, O Yahweh, our God, I pray, deliver us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, O Yahweh, are God. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, because you have prayed to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard you. This is the word that Yahweh has spoken against him, against Sennacherib. She has despised you and mocked you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She has shaken her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and haughtily lifted up your eyes? Against the Holy One of Israel. Through your messengers, you have reproached the Lord and you have said with many chariots, I came to the heights of the mountain, to the remotest parts of Lebanon. I cut down its tall cedars and its choice cypress. I entered its farthest lodging place, its thickest forest. I dug wells and drank foreign waters. And with the sole of my feet, I dried up all the rivers of Egypt. Have you not heard? Long ago, I did it. From ancient times, I planned it. And now I have brought it to pass that you should turn fortified cities into ruinous heaps. Therefore, their inhabitants were short of strength. They were dismayed and put to shame. They were as vegetation of the field and as of the green herb, as grass on the housetops is scorched before it is grown up. But I know you're sitting down and you're going out and you're coming in and you're raging against me. Because of your raging against me, because your arrogance has come up to my ears, therefore I will put a hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips, and I will turn you back by the way you came. 
Then, then he's going to speak now to Hezekiah. Then this shall be a sign for you, for you, Hezekiah. You shall eat this year what grows of itself. In the second year, what springs from the same. In the third year, sow, reap, plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of, out of Jerusalem shall go forth a remnant out of Mount Zion survivors, the zeal of Yahweh shall perform this. Therefore, thus says Yahweh concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come to this city, to Jerusalem, or shoot an arrow there. Neither shall he come before it with shield or throw up a mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return, and he shall not come to this city, declares Yahweh. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Then it happened that night that the angel of Yahweh went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when they, probably the people in Jerusalem, rose early in the morning, behold, all of them were dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And it came about as he was worshiping in the house of Nishrach, his god, that Adramelech and Sherezer killed him with the sword. And they escaped into the land of Ararat. And Esaradon, his son, became king in his place. What a story. Well, now we know why Sennacherib didn't finish his account of the conquest of Jerusalem. It is a question mark, historically. Why didn't he finish it? Because <laughs> he didn't conquer Jerusalem. And you don't celebrate your defeats. You don't line your palace walls with your dead army bodies. You talk about Lachish. The great king, Sennacherib, the king of the world, as he calls himself, met the great God. He met the real God, the true God over all the earth. Until now, this time he has conquered fake gods. Fake gods, like Hezekiah said. They're, those gods were just made with men's hands. They're made out of stone and wood. But now he's encountered the real God, and he has never encountered the likes of Yahweh, the true and only God. What a story. What a story. Let me give you the main point. The big takeaway. I'm going to start big takeaway. We usually end on these kind of big takeaways. I want to start here and then we'll narrow. Here's, here's the big takeaway of this story. What does it show us? It displays, here it is, God's deliverance of his people for the sake of his name. God's deliverance of his people for the sake of his name another of these great deliverance stories that God does for the sake of his glory, for the sake of his name. This, this is just one of those great themes, motifs that runs through all of scripture. And I should add to that, God delivers his people through judgment for the sake of his name, because that's the motif we see all through the scripture the way he delivers is through the judgment of his enemies for the sake the glory the vindication of his name that he is god alone that there is no other god to his glory alone 
I said, that's a motif all through the Bible. And here's another illustration, another example of it. Does this story remind you of anything? It should just be connecting your mind back to stories in the Bible because it's like that. Does it remind you of anything? Does it remind you of David and Goliath? Goliath, that arrogant enemy who reproached the living God. In fact, I think the writer is alluding there because that word reproach, to reproach, that word is used six or seven times in the Goliath story. And our author uses it four times here for what Sennacherib does to the Lord. In fact, let me just show them to you in your text there. Verse 9, when, verse 4, excuse me, chapter 19, verse 4, when he sends to Isaiah to pray, hear what he said, perhaps the Lord will hear all the words of the Rapshakah, whom his master, the king of Syria, has sent to reproach the living God. That's what he's done. Verse 16, when he prays in the heart of his prayer, he says, Lord, open, open your eyes and see and listen to the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Verse 22, the Lord's response when he's challenging Sennacherib, whom have you reproached and blasphemed? Verse 23, through your messengers, you have reproached the Lord. You hear it? Just connects you back to that story of another enemy, arrogant enemy with impossible odds, it seems. There's no deliverance from him reproaching the living God and God executing his deliverance and judgment to the glory of his name. Does it remind you, go before that story to the Exodus, to the Exodus and the Passover? Again, Pharaoh is another Sennacherib-like, or I should say Sennacherib's like Pharaoh. Pharaoh is the prototypical king who has set himself up against Yahweh, who has reproached Yahweh, mocked him, ridiculed him. Deliverance seems impossible for Israel. And yet God comes and the angel of the Lord, you make the connection there at the end, verse 35, like the Passover, the angel of the Lord goes forth and kills thousands. The judgment, God delivers his people, his name is vindicated. Or maybe a little closer to home in our study of kings, do you remember Elijah? On Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. Remember that great God contest we called it back there in chapter, nine, or chapter 18 of 1 Kings? Remember what was that issue there? Who is God? Is Baal God or Yahweh God? In that great contest where God vindicates his name as he even sends rain to renew his covenant, he vindicates his name that he alone is God. So here's another, another in the ongoing motif. The Lord delivers his people through judgment for the sake of his great name. Just hear these couple things under that main point. The Lord acts to vindicate his name as the only and true God. That's what he does. The Lord acts to vindicate his name as the only and true God. That's what you see here, don't you? We had a sense last week in chapter 18 when this spokesman for Sennacherib, the Rabshakeh, he's called. When he's trying to undermine the people's trust, we had a sense that he crossed a line when he equated Yahweh to other local man-made deities. And he's saying, don't, we've, we've crushed every God up to this point. Do you think Yahweh is going to be any different? Just another local deity. He crosses a line there. 
And God will respond. God will vindicate his name. It will not be lying in the mud. And he does. God said he has blasphemed me. He's made me equal to other gods. He has blasphemed me. And blasphemy will be accounted for before God. We saw it again in our chapter that this messenger that comes from Hezekiah with the letter, he repeats the same argument and he makes it very direct. You see that in verse 10? Thus you shall say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you. This is a direct challenge against the Lord, against Yahweh. Don't let him deceive you. We have destroyed all the other gods and all the other kings. Yahweh is no different. That will be answered. And that's what's answered in this text. Did you notice when Hezekiah prays, when he prays, what does he appeal to? He appeals that God would vindicate his name. That's the heart of his prayer. Both when he sins, he goes in the temple and he, he sins to Isaiah the prophet and asks Isaiah the prophet to pray. Remember what he said there again in verse 4? Perhaps the Lord will hear all your words, all the words of this spokesman whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God and will rebuke the words which Yahweh your God has heard. And then the heart of Hezekiah's prayer, look at his prayer again there and starts in verse 14 of, of the text. Just notice how it's couched in this language. This is a great prayer to model. When he spread out this letter before the Lord, the symbolic, here, here's the reproach that they're saying about you. Now do something for the glory of your name. So he spreads out the letter. And do you notice how he opens? Oh, Yahweh, the God of Israel, who are enthroned between the cherubim. You are God. You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You are the creator. You made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O oh Lord. Hear the words and listen to the words of Sennacherib which he has sent to reproach the living God. Verse 19. And now, O Yahweh, our God, I pray, deliver us from the hand, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, O Yahweh, are God. You hear it? Vindicate your name. Show yourself to be God alone. Save us that you might be magnified, that your name might be vindicated. That's the heart of his prayer. And did you notice the Lord's response through his prophet Isaiah? Again, this same theme, this same emphasis in his response. Look at verse 21 as starts the response. Just as Sennacherib has mocked Yahweh, so you're going to be mocked. So he says, Israel's going to mock you. They're going to mock you and shake their head at you. And then verse 22, here it comes. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and haughtily lifted up your eyes against the Holy One of Israel? Through your messengers, you have reproached Yahweh. You hear it? That's what's at stake here. That's the big issue. God's name has been mocked. God has been blasphemed. And now he comes to vindicate his name by rescuing his people through judgment. And then just to top it all off, verse 34 after he promises this deliverance, he just says it straight. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake. You hear it? 
for my sake. I will save it. And for David's sake. <laughs> for David's sake. Oh, that's that promise to David. Here it comes again. That's what underlines this whole book of Kings is that promise to David. I'll save it for David's sake here. Which leads just to the second note under this heading. The Lord's vindication of his name is bound up with the salvation of his people. The Lord's vindication of his name is bound up with the salvation of his people. He, he delivers his people to vindicate his name. He, he delivers through judgment to vindicate his name. It's bound up with that. Again, go back to Hezekiah's prayer there and look at verse 19. Look how he prays this. And now, O Yahweh, this is verse 19, our God, I pray, deliver us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, O Yahweh, are God. Deliver us that they may know that you are God. The way you magnify and vindicate your name is delivering your people and judging enemies. That's how it happens. So his vindicating this name, making it known, is bound up with the salvation of his people. That's why he says it's for David's sake too. Remember the promise to David, the promise to David of ultimate kingdom that he will bring through the line of David that leads us to Jesus, the son of David. For Jesus' sake, God will save God comes to rescue. That's good news. So when you hear this God's pursuit to vindicate his name, God's passion to extol his name for his glory alone, that he will be seen to be God alone, hear that as good news, Christian. Hear that as good news to sinners. Because he does that through rescuing his people through judgment to vindicate his name. He will display his mercy and his justice, won't he? That is good news that God is so committed to glorifying his name. And that's what he's doing. And so that takes us all the way down again, as we've seen over and over in the big story of the Bible. It takes us to Jesus. David's son, the king. Because the way that God saves us through Christ, he vindicates his name and rescues us. Remember the book of Romans, the heart of the book of Romans, the message of Roman. God is justified in the way that he rescues us in Christ because the cross of Jesus and the resurrection is the vindication of God and the salvation of sinners. They come together. God is vindicated. God is just and the justifier. Judgment falls on our Savior. Mercy falls on us. God is justified as the only God, as the one who saves, and we receive mercy. Praise God. That's the big story. That's the main point of this text. I always want to make sure we get the main thing that's being said in these stories. But now let's narrow down just a little bit to finish this off. As we learn about God, certainly, we want to see how it is met for our comfort and to strengthen our hearts, to strengthen our trust this morning. Why trust Yahweh? I want to come back to that heading and kind of finish on this note. Why trust him? Now, I'm playing off the last chapter because in the last chapter, we said the main question was, who do you trust? 
Who do you remember that key word of the chapter that was used nine times, trust? And that spokesman of Sennacherib was coming to undermine the people's trust. Don't trust Yahweh. Don't trust the king. And he was giving arguments, really good arguments for why you shouldn't trust the king. Trust Sennacherib, not Yahweh, not Hezekiah. And we asked, who do you trust? Who's Hezekiah going to trust? And remember what that spokesman said about Yahweh. He said these two things. Yahweh is not willing to deliver you. In fact, we're coming as an instrument of judgment. He's not willing to deliver you. And by the way, he's not able to deliver you. He's not willing, nor is he able. So don't trust him. We're going to do to him like we've done to all the other gods. Now in this chapter, as Hezekiah prays and the Lord responds, we get reasons why we should trust him, <laughs> why we trust Yahweh. Hezekiah does trust Yahweh. Remember we said last week, Hezekiah faltered at first. When Sennacherib came, he paid out tribute, took gold out of the temple, paid him off. Not a good sign. And I said, just reserve your judgment for Hezekiah. Because the Lord wasn't done. That didn't send Sennacherib away. He's still at the doorstep. And now the situation is desperate. And what does Hezekiah do? He trusts the Lord. Finally. Finally, a king like David. Finally. We've been waiting for this all through kings. He trusts and he prays to him. As one author put, he's finally uses the temple not to plunder it, to pay off the Assyrians, but for what it is really for a house of prayer. You see that twice he goes to the temple, this temple that was so central in the earlier parts of Kings. He goes there as a means of seeking the Lord. He is going to seek him and he is going to pray. So he does trust. And as he prays and as the Lord answers, we learn a couple things why you trust Yahweh. Here are the two. Here are the two. I am indebted here to Lissa Rabiel. Uh, she has an excellent commentary on Kings that kind of had this heading, and I really appreciated it. So I want to give her credit there for just this bigger picture look at who we, why we trust. But here are two reasons. One, because he is sovereign. Because he's sovereign. You can trust him because he's sovereign. Oh, I want you to believe that with all your heart. What do I mean? He's sovereign. I mean this. This is first note. He rules over and directs the affairs of all nations to accomplish his purposes. He's no parochial God. He's not just the God of Israel. Oh, he's uniquely their God by redemption, but he is the Lord of the whole earth. And his sovereignty, his rule is over all the nations, including Assyria. All the nations, including America, including Russia, including Ukraine and North Korea and China. He rules over all and he directs their affairs to accomplish his purposes. That's what I mean by sovereign. And oh, do we see it on display in this text. Again, look at the Lord's answer 
to Hezekiah's prayer that he sends through his prophet Isaiah. Listen to it. Be astonished by it. <laughs> Verse 23, he says, Though your messengers have reproached the Lord, through your messengers you have reproached the Lord and have said... Now, now listen to the contrast. Here's, here's what Sennacherib has been saying. How self-focused is it? He's taking credit for everything. With my, notice all the first person references here. <laughs> I and my. With my many chariots, I came up to the height of the mountains, to the remotest parts of Lebanon. I cut down its tall cedars and its choice cypress. I entered its farthest lodging place, its thicket forest. I dug the wells and drank foreign waters. And with the sole of my feet, I dried up all the rivers of Egypt. Look at all I did. This is arrogant boasting. Even Claiming the place of God and drying up rivers of Egypt. So this is his arrogance. This is his pride. And notice the Lord's response. Verse 25 now is the Lord speaking. Have you not heard? Long ago, I did it. From ancient times, I planned it. And now I have brought it to pass that you, Sennacherib, should turn fortified cities into ruinous heaps. Therefore... That's why their inhabitants were short of strength. They were dismayed and put to shame. There was vegetation of the field and the green herb as grass on the housetop is scorched before it's grown up. Do you, do you hear what he's saying? You think it's all you. Before you were born, before there was an Assyria, I planned it. I planned all of it. I'm doing it. Do you hear him? I planned it. You weren't even around. Who are you? Long ago from ancient times, I have, and now I've brought it to pass. You are merely my instrument that I have used for my judgment. The only reason you have conquered all the nations you have just said is because I decreed it. I did it through you. The only reason you had, quote, any success in this campaign is because of me oh listen to those words i planned it and i enabled you to accomplish my plan that's what he said and now i know you i know you intimate i know you're sitting down and you're coming out and i know you're raging against me i know your arrogance Oh, I have used you, you arrogant tool, right? And now I will judge you for your very arrogance. <laughs> oh, it's not that Sennacherib was self-consciously a servant of Yahweh. This is in the providence of God. But I want you to take that in. Those are staggering statements, aren't they? He was God's instrument, and yet he's guilty. He's, he's guilty for his arrogance and his blasphemy. And God holds him accountable. And now his judgment is coming. And he will be sent back. And he will be killed. And by the way, that happened. He is killed by his own family. Just what the Lord said. Amazing. It reminds me of another king who was quite pretentious that we'll see at the end of Second Kings. Do you remember Nebuchadnezzar? Who thought he was king of the world also. And then there God had mercy. God humbled him. I love, do you remember what Nebuchadnezzar said after that great event and his humbling? Here's what he said. This is Daniel chapter 4. 
He said, I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation, and all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will in all the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. No one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? God is sovereign over all things. That's why we trust him. That's in this situation. Let me just expand it with this next bullet here. He works all things after the counsel of his will to bring about his saving purpose to the praise of his glory. Referencing Ephesians 1.11. God, God, that's, that's the language of Ephesians 1. He's, he's working all things after the counsel of his will. He has saving purposes, the salvation that comes through judgment, as we say, to the praise of his glory. Again, back to magnifying himself, his name in it. All things. I wonder, do you believe that? This is our comfort. It's to be our comfort and our reason for trust. That things that are happening, hard things, bad things, an at your door are not random. They're not without purpose, but they're according to purpose. They're according to his purpose. And they're ultimately for our saving good. For our saving good. Do you believe that? I mean, it's, it's this sovereignty that underlines those precious words of Romans 8, 28 that we love to quote. Right? And they are precious. We loved them and we've looked at them. That all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called to his purpose. Do you believe that all things work together for good? That o- that's only true if God is sovereign. Oh, cherish it. Love it. So I just encourage you, even if these thoughts are new or big, you know, the sovereignty of God over all things. And there's lots of questions there. And there's plenty of mystery to God's providence of how he executes his will, I mean, here using Sennacherib, who's choosing right according to his will what he wants to do, and yet he is God's instrument. God, He's executing God's plan. I know lots of questions about that that we wrestle, that we can't quite plumb the depth. I would just encourage you this morning to learn to cherish, not chafe against God's predestining sovereignty. Yes, it's complex. Yes, it's difficult. But it is for our comfort. I hope it's for your comfort this morning. What one author called the pillow of predestination. I love that. It's exactly right. Now, let me finish. So there are two two things why we trust Yahweh. Because he is sovereign. And here's the second. Because he responds to our prayers. (laughs) Because he responds to our prayers. This sovereign God over all nations, this exalted God above the cherubim, he attends to the cries of his people. He hears and he sees. He hears you, he sees you, he knows you. And he delights to respond. This is really astonishing, these things in this chapter. Look, look there at verse 21 and let me just make sure you, you hear it. Verse 20, excuse me. Look at verse 20. Remember Isaiah, he prayed. His prayer, God-centered prayer. 
Hezekiah did. Then Isaiah comes with the word from the Lord. And do you see what he says? Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah saying, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel. Just listen to this. Because you have prayed. You hear it? Because you have prayed, I'm going to do this. Because you have prayed, I'm going to deliver Jerusalem. Because you have prayed, 185,000 soldiers are dead. And this great king of the world will be no more. Because you have prayed. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Oh, isn't there an incentive to pray, right? A great incentive. I heard you. Now, again, we're wrestling because you say, wait, I thought God planned it long ago. Didn't you say that? Yeah. But you just said because he prayed. Yeah. It's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. This gets into the mystery of, of God's providence. And these two things are never at odds in the Bible. How do you put that together, Mark? How do you put that together? It's hard to put together, but I'll say this. Maybe a simple thing. God has ordained to often make the prayers of his people the cause of his actions. God has ordained often to make the prayers of his people the cause of his actions. Not always. God will do things apart from prayer, but so often as part of God's sovereignty, of part of his ordaining and planning, he plans prayer. He ordains prayer. He moves people to pray. That's why we pray. Because in this text, God's deliverance is the result of prayer. Hezekiah's prayer. And I don't want to diminish that. And so I say, hold these things together, these two great truths. God is sovereign and he delights to answer our prayers. And love to put them together, love to cherish them. God's sovereignty is never, in the Bible, it's never a disincentive to pray. I know people have asked me, and it's, it's a good question, you wrestle with it. Well, if God's planned everything, like according to his will, why should I pray? Because he's planned your praying as the means for his will to come to pass. There's a real connection there. And it's always an incentive, not a disincentive to pray. It's a strong motivation to pray. We pray because he's sovereign. Oh, yeah, much mystery. But don't be wiser than the scriptures, right? We cause us to pray and we see the effects of prayer. We learned in that other great story that I mentioned earlier from Elijah. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Oh, we need to believe it. Hezekiah's prayer there, we don't have time, is a great model prayer. It's one of the outstanding features of this text. You can go back and look at that. Maybe think about it as a, as a model prayer. I'll just say this one word about it. In our need and petitions, and we are invited to petition God, we should often ask God to work for the sake of his name. That's what Hezekiah does. Do it, Lord. Do it for the sake of your, do it that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are God. And he does. And that's the reason we're sitting here this morning as part of this nation. Confessing this God. Because he answers these prayers. 
the salvation of nations even, like us. Oh, do you pray like that? Just a God say, yes, bring our needs, our desperate needs to him. Pray for deliverance, pray for healing, pray for rescue, and do it for his sake. Pray for the sake of his name to be known, to be vindicated, to be glorified. Is it not the first line of the Lord's Prayer that Jesus taught us to pray? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Glorified, set apart, reverenced be your name. Oh, may this text lead us to pray, to pray. Hold these two things Together, they complement one another. God is sovereign over all things. He is the sovereign Lord, and He is the personal Lord who delights to stoop and answer the prayers of His people right now. May it be a, an incentive to trust Him. Well, I need to stop. Let me pray, and then we're going to sing these great words that express our trust in Him. Let me pray for us before we sing. Father, increase indeed our trust in you. So, so many things, even today, trying to undermine our trust. Other voices, situations, circumstances, health issues, seemingly impossible situations. Oh God, cause us to believe that you're sovereign over all things, purposing, and that you delight to hear us and you love to answer in accordance with your goodwill for the sake of your name. So teach us to trust, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.